Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Uh, hello and welcome to the Fusion Health Radio Q&A podcast. Uh, this is our first time doing this sort of thing. We're experiencing just a few minor technical difficulties, uh, just trying to iron those out. Uh, if you do encounter anything that's not working for you, please do let us know. You can chat us uh, through the Zoom uh, chat window it's down at the bottom of your screen. Um, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And uh, welcome back to another Fusion Health Radio um, infotainment extravaganza. <laughs> that's what we could call it. Uh, this is all new and exciting for both Michael and I. We're trying to figure out how to do this. And um, I guess we're learning uh, learning as we go. So um, I'm not quite sure how we should kick this whole thing off. So if we're going to do a live Q&A, let's start with some Q and so the Q and the <laughs> Sure. Uh, Michael, you put out some requests of people you know and to, I guess, uh, patients and such mm -hmm. to get some questions back. Yeah. Well, we do have uh, one friend, patient of mine, who's on the call right now. We've had a few other people come in and leave uh, just because we were getting the audio set up. So I don't know if they're coming back on, but I'm not sure if Catherine can actually hear us right now. But if she comes back on the call and she can unmute her microphone, hopefully she can ask us a question too. Sure. Um, <clears throat> Otherwise, we got like a, a list or so. And somebody else just came on. So yeah, let's okay. just hope that they can hear us and we can hear them. So welcome to the Fusion Health Radio Q&A podcast today. I'm Anthony Santa, uh, sitting across the table from... Dr. The, Michael Smith, <laughs> round two, here we go. That regular old face with our podcast. Uh, if you're familiar with how Michael and I do things, we sit behind the cameras and the microphones uh, once a week or so and investigate different ideas around uh, health, diet, and nutrition. And uh, this week, uh, we decided to do a Q&A podcast. <clears throat> and uh, Michael put it out there uh, looking for uh, questions from uh, people that he knows. And um, one of the uh, questions that came in, are you ready to dive into this already? Yes, absolutely, unless somebody online has something, I'm good to go. Sure. Uh, well, the first question that, uh, that came in um, is something that uh, you might need to do a little bit of uh, explanation around. But I'll just ask the question as it is. Uh, why take vitamin D3 or CBD three times a day? Right. Okay. So that that's actually a really good question. So I think I'll start with just the what you might call the philosophy or the engagement in life of having to take a lot of supplements because that's something I've been doing on and off for probably 25 years, and I can pretty much say that that's been one of the uh, more challenging parts of, of just day-to-day -day life because <clears throat> you really have to stay out of the game and I'll just share my you know <laughs> evil doctor secret <laughs> it's called Ziploc bags so I take a whole bunch of little like snack-sized Ziploc bags 
probably once a month and I sit there and I put all my stuff in there, like lunch, breakfast, dinner, my office, my car, my house, my girlfriend's house, somebody else's house or uh, wherever I spend a lot of time because if I don't have my wherewithal to get my pills together and supplements together and, and I'm in the middle of a day where I can't go and get them, I've missed the opportunity to maintain the dosage. And for a lot of things, that's the game. It's just to maintain consistent uh, application and dosage. So the three times a day thing uh, in general is just, it's just a good idea. But specifically when you're looking at something like uh, D3 and CBD, both of those uh, nutritional supplements have primarily what we call an immune regulatory benefit. So the analogy that I usually use, and I admit that this is not a very accurate one, but it, I don't know, if you have an imagination, you can run with it a bit. <laughs> so imagine that there's a construction site and you got a bunch of 20 year old guys with too much testosterone and power tools. And you got this older guy with you know a white hat and a clipboard walking around trying to keep everybody on tack basically. And if that guy took off and left the construction site, and I'm making this up for imagery and fun, you're likely to see you know a barbecue you know get lit and then you know nail gun wars in the back alley and then probably some beer pong and you know whatever else because processes tend towards entropy or chaos in a way. And if your body's already triggered towards uh, something you would need vitamin D3 and CBD, which typically be an autoimmune inflammatory kind of process, the construction site's already on fire. So getting those guys to really hunker down and focus on their job, uh, that's what's going to make the biggest difference, right? And in order to do that, I mean, if we were to be, I know, it's going to be a funny image, but imagine that we're all like in some way little robots and we have this little thing you can fill up on the back of your head that just delivers a pill at the ideal time your robot physiology needs it to keep you well. <laughs> that's a weird analogy. And it'd be super easy because then you could get your medicine every eight hours like clockwork and it would run through its entire cycle of activity and your body would have periods of time where it wouldn't be under the influence of that chemistry but at least it wouldn't be very long right whereas if i took say i was supposed to take uh, a thousand units of d3 three times a day and five milligrams of cbd three times a day, pretty standard thing to do if i decided to take them all in the morning one i probably feel really kind of i don't know what about a flat affect but i would just call it mildly under the influence of an anti-anxiety process. So I would be on a somatic level, nerve muscles and bones, just kind of really relaxed and calm for a little while. Right. But the rest of my day, as soon as the effect of the D3 or the CBD had worn out, now my body's gonna go back to, you know, testosterone and power tools and a house on fire. <laughs> <clears throat> so again, that's the idea with those kind of compounds is, and it actually takes four days. If you can take those kind of supplements every day, three times a day for day one, two, three, and then four, your body, and this is really weird to say out loud, but try to hold the imagery, your body is going to, on a deep instinctual level, just assume, oh, you sprouted a new gland. And that gland is regularly secreting immune modulatory hormones and alkaloids that seem to be doing a good job. So let's run with that as our baseline for physiology. But if you're not consistent, I mean, in the first four days, it's like on the first date, you're just getting to know each other. So once you get into that process, then you start seeing gradual reversal of damage and repair of tissue and, and a bunch of other things. So maybe a long answer, but really important with some supplements is you're, you're hiring someone to steer the, the car of your immune system. And if no one's got the wheel, it's going to go where it's been going 
for the last 20 years, which is usually inflammation, tissue damage, swelling, infection, and stuff like that. So uh, if you just joined us, the question that Michael's answering, uh, why take, I guess, any supplements? Mostly the immune regulating ones or the hormonal ones, depending. I mean, there's exceptions to things, but. Would you say that there's something to be said about taking a supplement um, almost as like a meditative practice? Ooh, I'm so glad you brought that up. Because if we were to like go from normal to springboard to like meditation and then springboard to like shamanism and then springboard into the <laughs> where I live, I would definitely say that, yeah, if you're going to be doing supplements, you know, three times a day, if there's a way you could make it as sort of non sticky, weird ritual where you actually give yourself a couple of minutes, you know, glass of water, supplements, you know, calm room, no distractions, instead of just jumping your stuff back in between patients like I do. <laughs> sometimes. Well, yeah, sometimes. Um, that way you can actually engage in a more conscious or sentient relationship with not only what you're doing about your health, but what they could do about your health as well. Excuse me. <clears throat> and again, the springboard from the meditative kind of just conscious awareness practice, you go to the shamanic side of things which I often mention to people, and this is where it gets a bit goofy, but if you were to put your supplements in your hand, you know, in whichever way they fit into your hand, right? And then you've got your glass of water, which maybe you've held under the sun or, you know, put some magic potion in there or something for you. The shamanic thing to do is to take a deep breath and hold a sense of intention. And I'll speak to that again in just a moment. And then hold that intention and then blow that intention into your medicine. And that could be chemotherapy, just FYI. It doesn't have to be your vitamin C and, you know, transcripts or whatever. But you take a deep breath and you make a noise with your breath. And just imagine that you're sending whatever the hell shamanism and vibrations and consciousness is about into the medicine and you make a request. Mm -hmm. right? the, I'll, go back, again, I'll go back to the intention part in a moment. But holding that intention and you make the request, please do what it is I know you can do for me. You know, and then you take your medicine and swallow it back. And as goofy as that sounds, you're basically amplifying what we goof, goofily call the placebo effect. Okay, and maybe I'll come back to that quickly too. So when I say intention, you have two choices. I, I would say maybe there's a thousand, but two on the left foot, right foot. <clears throat> the left foot is you just try and think about the thought you have, and you think about it with a lot more thought or a lot more. And purr, like, I really don't want to die this. So I'm not being, well, I'm flipping, but we focus on the words in our head. I really don't want to get sicker. And that's your intention. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're could to take that. Be, Michael, sorry, could there be a, not a, like a pretty huge transfer of energy too, along with the placebo effect when you're. Yeah, the, pro the problem with that question, though, is that we end up having to go back to the discussion of energy as a noun instead of a kind of a thought form. And then we end up having to deal with the bioelectricity transfer of bioelectricity that makes human quantum work. Yeah, if we, if we can if we can find a way to talk about this in English without getting stuck in something science is supposed to figure out, then we're going to be okay. But as long as we keep sort of presuming that science is going to catch up on this in the next hundred years, we're actually just digging ourselves deeper into. Yeah, we uh, have microbes running off of electricity. I'll, I'll send you that stuff later. Oh, I know, I know about that stuff. I'm just talking about general communication with the general public. As soon as you get into the woo-woo, people either want to fixate it into something we will find under a microscope, or people will just gap into the. Woo -woo. Okay, I hear so, the placebo effect. Sure. Yeah. yeah. 
So, anyway, so again, when you're looking at intention as thought, you're basically just, you know, very authoritatively saying your thought in your head, I really am committed to my health in whatever way. Good idea. When you look at it from a more indigenous perspective, when you look at intention and how those languages work, you're actually creating a moving cartoon. Now, that's a wrong word in English because cartoon is playful, childlike humor. But what I mean by cartoon is a moving image of humans and animals and nature and you know, whatever else is included in, in the interaction, being conscious, consciously in the interaction. So when I, when I blow on my herbs, because I do this all the time, I see whatever it is I'm treating in my body. It's my liver with fatty, inflammatory you know, stuff, because I use some drink a lot or whatever. It's like, okay, that's what I'm asking this to do in action with imagery. Right, and that—that's—I'm not saying one's a million times better than the other. It's just that there's a feeling tone to imagery and being complicit with the whole family of what's going on. And another thing to be the patriarchal one and you yelling for your vote to be heard by everybody and just shut up and listen. And I'm obviously polarizing that in a really, really big way. I just wanted to be really clear that you know when you're taking medicine and the capital M sense of medicine and you can ally with that in a way the most co-creatively way you're going to do it is the most cooperative the more didactic and i tell you what to do even if you're praying there's still a shift in in uh, what i would call expectation you know in the sense of i said what i wanted i want that result so then we become passive whereas i can see this cartoon or this moving image in my head of my liver and my immune system getting along better for whatever reason anytime my mind isn't on whatever it needs to be on, it's very likely that my mind will just drift back to associative relating, which is that cartoon in my head, which is the biggest power we have. So I'll throw out an example of this, uh, or two. So example one, <clears throat> this is back in, I think, 2002, give or take. Uh, it might have been sooner than that because the states went kind of bonky after 2001, but um, but it was 2002. They had taken uh, 400 people who are all trained healers and meditators, and they all went to Washington, D.C., which at that point had the highest murder rate in the U.S. And these 400 meditators were uh, given, I don't know, like a voucher, go, go spend four days in the, in the town and just focus on peace. Some of them went to like big parks, you know, and, and just sat there and watched people and hung out in nature and held for four days straight the intention, again, talk, talk, or image, image of peace. Some people went to hospitals, some people went to prisons, some people went to police stations, other people went to the poorest places in that city and, and literally lived on the street for four days. You know, this is like a Buddhist monk who goes and says, okay, I'm going to go hang out in Washington, D.C. and live in a cardboard box in a back alley and meditate on peace for four days and hope I don't get jacked by somebody. <laughs> What's cool, and this was like a double-blind-ish experiment in the sense that nobody knew what anybody was doing. Nobody, There was no big collaboration. People just were given, go into the city, find a place for yourself, spend four days. You know, I'm sure somebody sat at the penthouse hotel and <laughs> tried to ride too, but... After the uh, four days, and they did all their correlative math and stuff like that, the city of Washington, D.C. experienced a 25% reduction in violent crime for four days. Wow. Wow. 25%. 25%. That's so example number two, just with respect to intention, because this is, this is the really cool shit, honestly, when it comes to, like, I've taken my pills now. What? <laughs> I have my acupuncture now. What? Another example, 
So this was more from a Christian, uh, Catholic, I don't know, Western religion, where you're going to pray like you're asking for a favor, right? And um, they took a bunch of people in different hospitals, and then they found a whole bunch of different religious organizations that were willing to do this, who had that as a part of their living faith, was to pray for people. So there was a group of people that were in hospital in serious trouble, and there was a bunch of people praying for them, but they did not know at all. And they didn't care. They're just like, yeah, whatever. Again, twenty-five percent reduction in symptoms, mm-hmm. at least severe, like pain and inflammatory and destructive symptoms. The people who were aware that they were being prayed for, but had really no way to deal with that at all, but were at least you know grateful that some other humans you know had looked at their name and their picture and said, oh, Bob, he's sick, he's got cancer. I think they got a 30 to 35% release in belief in, in really active aggressive symptoms. But the person wasn't engaged in it at all. They were just like, really? There's a bunch of hippies praying for me? Okay, whatever. But for some reason, that tilted things even more in their favor. And people who are actively religious, actively, actively engaged in prayer, actively aware that people were praying for them at a certain period in time, they got over 50% reduction in the most alarming uh, markers. Wow. So not to go off too far, I'm just saying there's some really cool stuff about not only when you take your pills, but how you take them. But it's getting into the, I think, the relationship that you now need these things. They're like clothing. They protect you from something in the world that can hurt you. It just happens to be from the inside. (laughs) The idea of actually... Uh, taking medicine with uh, intention is uh, something I think we've talked about in podcasts before at length. Um, and it only, I don't know, I'll speak personally, it makes total sense for me because I think that's how I've always done it. Um, even as a kid, just sort of playing with food, talking about it, saying, you know, make sure you go to the right spot because I want to grow up big and strong. Right. You know, uh, it's that kind of um, innocence. Um, at that time that I think today translates into something a little bit more powerful where it's like, I know full well that if I connect with whatever it is that's going into me, that it's going to do something a little bit uh, bigger and better than it would otherwise, right? Yeah. And I, I'm really just sitting here with a kind of goofy smile, just thinking of the experiential quality of children we call innocence, which I would call pure co-creativity. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're, they're you know, they're little Jedi black belts. There's nothing in the way. <laughs> but I mean, next time I go for a shaman, I'm going to go find like a 10 year old. <laughs> just pray, man. I don't, just get some crayons, do your thing. It's going to work fine. And just to, to touch back on the, the, the charging of the medicine thing, or the. I was also taught by this character that taught me kinesiology of the importance of like clearing the, the, the medicine too. Of, of like because all kinds of people might have touched it or done made it and who knows what they were thinking or feeling when they interacted with it and deleting what or clearing it first yeah that's an interesting really modern thing what do you think yeah there's a so i like to make the distinction when i speak about what we call shamanism and that word's been hijacked and spray painted already but so there's shamanism that I think we could attribute to what was before we got into books and, you know, videotaping people and, you know, stuff like that. <clears throat> and then we have what I would call contemporary shamanism, which is what we remember from the past, what people have written books about or what you can pick up on a workshop or, you know, those kind of things. And I'm not trying to make some 
I'm a big value judgment of either one. But it's been my experience being raised up fairly traditionally in certain aspects of uh, Aboriginal culture and practice that, especially say when we're bringing people into a sweat lodge and we have, that's um, not a mystery, like say a big Eagle, Eagle Wing fan, and we, you know, basically uh, smudge people off. And because of the context of a sweat lodge, we're going to use sage before they go into the doorway. Mm -hmm. Sage is not used to clear away bad stuff. So a lot of people have this idea of we're purifying them before they go into a purifying ceremony. And not to be picky, but that's kind of a waste of medicine because you're already doing the same thing inside the lodge. So the idea that we need to purify everything before anything's going to be okay is a very new perspective. And I'll speak to this from a traditional point of view. I mean, there's lots of ways to say stuff or believe stuff, but from a traditional point of view, when you're using sage, the effective result or association you're looking for is for the ancestors to draw close to you, right? Because they've been through whatever they had to get through to get you here. So they, they have the wisdom, the power, the knowledge, the awareness, the sensitivity or whatever. So again, uh, when you're using something like smudge, you may have the perception that you're going in there to, uh, as Joe had said, you know, like go in there and remove any coding or, or you know, pathological intention or anything like that uh, from, say, you know, your vitamins or something like that, which I think is a great idea. I just think when you're blowing on the medicine saying, please do everything you can for me, you've kind of removed the against. But if you go towards your medicine and say, I think I want to get rid of the against before I start blowing on it, asking for it to do what it's for me, then your intention is divided, right? In a way, like, oh, I might get into some trouble here, but I really want it to not be bad for me. Because you, you, in terms of thought forms, you've brought both realities to the present. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were to say, well, I blow on my herbs, I'm also, you know, in a certain way, bringing in the sage component or the ancestors coming into my medicine. If the ancestors get into your vitamins and they're made by a shitty company and there's some um, reaching for where people can go with this, some negative intention of the guy on the factory line who put the, the pill in the bottle or whatever, <clears throat> that's been taken care of. For me to go in there and actually have to break down the negative to get to the positive, very, very modern perspective. And maybe if that's what's needed now, I don't know, but it's not what's ever been needed before. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Thanks. Yeah. That's, uh... And just just to say, this is my friend Joe. He's he's using a pseudonym, which is cool. Uh, but he's been around um, indigenous practices for a long time too. So I mean, it's it's, it's really great to you know, make this. That, that's my Blackfoot name. It. Yeah. Yeah. Joseph's oh, okay. My, Joseph's my slave name. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> More, More questions. questions. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's carry on here. Um, oh, well, there's people online, so if anyone who's actually on who can unplug their mic, and if Joe, if you actually have a specific question, shoot. If you've just joined us, this is the Fusion Health Radio podcast uh, Q&A session uh, live here today with uh, Michael Smith in its studio, uh, in our uh, homemade studio here. Uh, we're doing what we can to answer questions that have come in, um, as well as to participate with people online. First time we've done this sort of thing, so... Um, Everybody's learning today, <laughs> both us and the listener. Uh, you ready for another question? And if you run into something, you could shoot me an email through uh, either my email or through Facebook if you can't get through, and that's because we hit the wrong button and we'll fix it. Okay. We'll fix it. Yep. Oh, okay. Can you speak? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> can you please speak to the um, 
uh, leaky gut and the blood barrier crossing the brain. Whoa. Okay. So I'll take the worst case scenario if that's okay. Sure. Thank you. Just because I think it makes the most sense and then I'll backtrack it to make it make more sense. And please, I would ask anyone listening to this to give me at least two minutes because I'm going to say a word that may sound really like faddish and that might just make you want to like, I don't know, stick your head in the snow or something. But so I'm going to say the word gluten. Just waiting for the, something to land on my head. For, so hold my hands up. I don't know if you can see it, but gluten is what's called a prolamine, which is a kind of molecule that has a really unique protein and a really unique kind of stretchy glue. Then they're stuck together like this. And the thing that's really cool about prolamines, especially gluten, because it's so uh, highly concentrated in things like wheat, that when you get it wet and heat it up, and add some basic chemistry, what you're going to see is a lot of carbon dioxide happen, and it's basically going to swell up, and this little package here is going to fill up with carbon dioxide, which is why we love things like wheat, because the prolamine uh, in wheat, we call gluten, uh, is very, very prolific, and it fills up with lots of space. So we just love that stuff because it makes our food all chewy and, you know, nice mouthfeel, and you can have pastry bread or flaky bread or whatever you want. <clears throat> but when you're digesting this molecule, and it's very, very hard to digest, especially when it's all stretched out and tight like this, because now it's like a, a, a fractured protein in a way, which makes it a bit more toxic. When you do digest it down, and when it comes apart, it explodes, and then you get what's called gliadin, uh, something called a glutenin, and uh, it spills, spills off a reactive molecule called zonulin. And I just love that word because I think if I was ever to write like a children's fantasy book on bad aliens, it's the zonulins are coming. That's, that's, that's where, where the romulans came from. from. <laughs> the romulans, zonulin. Oh, yeah, damn. I knew it was a reason. Okay, so we have we have the little tissue grenade of gluten, and every other grain has a prolamine in it too. So you have like I'll just go through the math quick because I'm assuming you could see my hands. So way up here, you're getting about 68% of the protein in wheat is the gluten prolamine. You go down here to like barley, corn, oats is about 13%. If I have that right, it could be it might be as low as five. But then when you go down to white rice, you're looking at three percent of the protein in white rice is the prolamine in rice. So the amount of hand grenades you're swallowing in the in a bundle, certainly of risotto, is a hell of a lot less than in a big slice of pizza. Right? So hand grenades. <laughs> hand grenades bad. They're full of zonulin aliens that take over your body. So they they, they explode. Blah. Okay, you got that part. So Here's the absorptive microvilli of your small intestine. The microvilli are reaching out of the wall of your intestines into your food to try and get through your poo to get the good stuff that's still in there. I know that's gross, but welcome to medicine. <laughs> There's, they come out, the cells come out in little groups, you could say, and I'm making this up to make it simple. So here we have a bunch of absorptive microvilli and a bunch more, and they stick together cell by cell through what's called a tight junction. Like if my thumbs grab each other, it's like, I'm never letting go of you, we're friends forever. Until Zonion comes along in this little hand grenade form and goes, and then the tight junctions within the absorptive structure of your hand or your small chest goes to crap. <laughs> and then you got a hole. So now you got stuff. I need another hand. Or, hold on a second. That pen is bad for you. <laughs> so now you got this hole, and the bad stuff's going to fall through it. <laughs> See, video, it's so much more fun. 
And um, that happens. Now in zonulin or other inflammatory cytokines or reactions to those molecules that are happening below the surface of your small intestine in your blood supply, once that street war really gets going, it's going to start uh, having the same biochemistry around your blood-brain barrier, which is also a membrane of junctions that are only supposed to allow certain things in, certain things out. Super important, right? Um, but when that whole cascade starts to happen from leaky gut to leaky brain, you're now having, and I'm just going to run the list, you're going to have what's called lipopolysaccharide, which is a defensive uh, strategy molecule that's highly corrosive, go right through your gut, right through your liver, right through your bloodstream, right into your blood-brain barrier, right into your brain, causing intra uh, cerebral inflammation and swelling. It's akin to being hit in the head with a a friend, uh, shovel. I was going to say something sledgehammer, but I got stuck on how to not say the yeah part. So. <laughs> but it's like it's like a concussion. You're just your immune system in your head is just going to swell up and use up your neurotransmitters, your acetylcholine, memory formation molecules, your essential fatty acids, and inflammatories. You're basically just cooking the brain. No one's fault. Like you're cooking your brain. How bad? But that's what's going to be happening. And then there's gross as this is. Your immune system always is always fighting off bacteria. So there's a lot, a lot of bacteria inside your gut. Like it's at the end of the tube of your gut, you're looking at quadrillions of bacterial entities per millimeter of fluid. That's 16 zeros. So constant war, but you start popping holes in that tube, although way up here it'd only be maybe a million or you know, 10 million or so per milliliter. There's a lot of bug ears, a bug elbows, a bug shoe, a bug jacket, a bug, I don't know, biker hat, something just floating through the leaky gut, floating through the bloodstream, floating through the blood brain barrier, causing more secondary infection and inflammation uh, of the brain itself. If you're a fan of things like alcohol, uh, that's not only going to increase the damage of your leaky gut. Um, but now the alcohol is falling through the blood brain or through the leaky gut, through the liver more rapidly. And some of that is going to end up falling through the brain, through the blood brain barrier. And that's really bad because you're not supposed to have alcohol get past your liver. Right? Alcohol is poison. It turns into something called acetylaldehyde, which is still poison. It's just going to make you sort of funny and goofy before it kills you. <laughs> Whereas having actually acetylaldehyde and alcohol going through the blood brain barrier is a huge insult to the brain. And then you're looking at pharmaceutical drugs that are meant to be broken down completely, and then they're getting not only you know jammed up in your gut and then being completely metabolized through your liver, getting into your brain. Mm -hmm. The worst things for the brain in that uh, situation would be <clears throat> sleeping pills and anti-anxiety drugs, the things that most people are reaching for when their brain is chronically inflamed because of a broken blood-brain barrier. So the end of it is vicious, like capital V, vicious feedback loop with symptomology and uh, treatment with pharmaceuticals to mitigate the symptomology. But now you're going from an inflamed brain to an actual damaged brain This kind of moving in the direction towards, let's say, Alzheimer's or other degenerative neurological conditions. And I always hate saying this out loud, but brain cancer. <clears throat> yeah. However, fix the leaky gut tune up your liver, focus on neurological health and diet. I just did a two-hour thing on Alzheimer's. I think it's up somewhere out there now, if people want to watch it. Um, we just, you know, well, we spent about an hour on Alzheimer's, but the rest of it's just, this is how you repair your brain. You know, and it's food, diet, supplements, meditation, you know, all the good stuff. And there's even a lot of evidence in 
since we're doing live q and A, I can just say whatever that comes to mind. Microdosing psilocybin, microdosing LSD. I mean, especially psilocybin, you're seeing profound changes in neurological activity. And then there's like more I don't know, friendly mushrooms you can buy in a store like Lion's Mane, which is also clinically been proven, like double blind dead rat, clinically proven, not just a suggestion from you know the source that it can help your neurological systems repair themselves exercise fasting there's so many things we can do to uh, reinvigorate the brain's ability to repair itself i mean I, i'm i'm naturally like any other 50 year old in this part of the world going hmm, i wonder if i've overdone it or i wonder if i'm going to end up with some kind of brain problem because it's such a concern nowadays but looking at how many things you can do for repairing your brain part of me wants to just um, go on a bender or something yeah <laughs> Obviously, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm just saying that you know, once you really start realizing how resilient that part of our self is, if we can really organize our life around repairing it, we can repair it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah if, if we looked at if we looked at Alzheimer's as a six-stage process, you can be into stage three and a half and four and still reverse it completely. Mm -hmm. uh, I know the, the uh, protocol that I was put on uh, by this guy that I know. You oh. <laughs> a couple of years ago, uh, in terms of helping me and my digestion and figuring out what works in my gut and what doesn't, uh, it's totally possible to heal your gut. You can, if you can heal your gut, you can heal your blood brain barrier and you can repair your brain. Mm -hmm. So, I'm going to say this just because it's such a easy thing to remember and I can use my hand in the sense of a visual imagery. So instead of like thinking how intention can work with words and how intention can work with moving images, I'm just going to use some moving images. So here's uh, the back of your brain and it's a nice big chubby uh, grape-like structure. And if there's chronic inflammation, chronic stress, a whole bunch of other stuff, that raisin will eventually deteriorate and shrivel because of a misuse of tissue. It'll turn into a little raisin. And that's now, now when your whatever consciousness is comes along to try and access what's in the raisin, it's like, damn, I was looking for grape stuff and I can't find it. <clears throat> so as soon as you're, as long as you're still in raisin mode, in the sense of the structure of your brain, you can only access what raisins can hold on to, which is usually fear-based memories, survival stuff. Because as animals, it seems almost implicit to the, the equation that if you're going to start losing memories and you had a choice, you would only keep the memories that would keep you alive in a near-death experience, which is why people in dementia are so much fun to be around, because they can only remember everything that was the worst thing that ever happened to them. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, raisin, <laughs> you take your raisin and you give it everything it needs, and it turns back into a grape. And that takes between four months to two years, but you can turn a person with measurable tissue changes in the brain and turn it back to relatively normal. So, just saying. Just saying. Oh. Hi. What what is considered a microdose of the mushrooms? Uh, for psilocybin, I think it's um, three hundred and twenty-five milligrams would be the, what we call the hunter's dose. So you are going to feel a little shifted, and you are going to notice a lot of really intense edge detection in your vision, and you are going to notice you can see like three times better than normal. Uh, but you should not be shifting over into the psychoactive state where you're actually noticing any kind of like trails when you move your hands or the typical like low low threshold hallucination stuff. Um, I would suggest if anyone's going to try this is to start at 50 milligrams and you're not going to notice that at all. 
unless for whatever reason you're profoundly profoundly sensitive to this stuff um, and see what happens. And I would suggest start on a weekend. And if you've never done any of those kind of infusions before, uh, you might want to get a babysitter to hang out with that first day, just in case for whatever reason, you know, human personalities and we, we're profoundly good at creating really horrible ideas <laughs> and following them into the wherever they go, right? So if you're mildly altered on a hallucinogen and for whatever reason that's the day you decide to recapitulate the worst thing that ever happened to you and you believe that now you're hallucinating about the worst thing that ever happened to you and oh my god, where's my babysitter? <laughs> okay. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, yeah. But but I would say just just uh, start really really slow. Do some other research on it. I, I could be completely wrong. It's not something I can legally actually recommend in any way. So I'm just aware that's sort of the that's what we call the hunter's dose if you're going hunting. So fifty milligrams. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, other questions that have come in through uh, to Michael earlier this week. Um, the one here. I had a question about what the question was about. So this might be a bit of a longer answer. The question is, does LDN work with fibromyalgia and cancer? And then the question about the question is, what is LDN? All right. <laughs> so the answer is yes. Uh, the answer to question two is LDN is low-dose naltrexone. And this is one of my personal favorite things. It's done profoundly beneficial things for me. <clears throat> so... Naltrexone is in a class of drugs that is used to mediate how our body can actually metabolize opiates. Okay. So if you're in the hospital and you're overdosing on um, fentanyl or oxy or something like that, they will give you what's called naloxone, right? Which is a much more concentrated and, and an emergency version of this. So you take naloxone and it blocks the opi opiate receptors. So now the poison of excess opiate drugs is no longer able to move through the receptor to cause any more you know, damage or you know, delirium or anything like that. So good to know we have that capacity. Now, when you're looking at low-dose naltrexone, um, let's just look at the use of naltrexone itself. In standard care, it's usually used at around 50 milligram dose. And it's used on a daily basis for people who are trying to avoid uh, or interfere with an addiction to an opiate. And it can even work with alcohol and other stuff. And if you're into cannabis, no, they don't interact with each other. It's in a different system in the brain. Um, in a way, although I would say you're going to, it would still be a good idea if you're trying to like change your relationship with cannabis. But the idea again is with using naltrexone at 50 milligrams, you get home from work and you take it and within 40 minutes for the next few hours, no matter what you do, you are not going to get high. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you're drinking and you're, you know, you're a Mickey into your whatever stuff you like and you're still sitting there going, damn, I just, you know, but usually at this point I'm, you know, happy, happy dancing around the living room naked or whatever and I can't feel nothing. So that's the big benefit of it is that if you're trying to like, you know, interfere with heroin's uh, effect, alcohol's effect, or things effect, it's a really good way to do it because now you're sitting there at home where you're going to need to eventually return to your life, unable to get high, even if you're trying to get high, which I can't imagine how frustrating that must be for someone, but at least you can sit there after the first couple of tries and go, well, here I am, kind of stuck with myself, 
without the ability to hide or, or mask or uh, stuff or snooze or whatever word we decide to frame our relationship with addictive suppression is. So that, that's sort of the long and short of what uh, opiate blocking is and how it's used in general medicine. Now, back in the 80s, <clears throat> somebody realized when they were treating AIDS patients who are at that degree of illness very prone to abuse of drug uh, use because well, they're, they're going to die. So maybe they're using heroin for pain or they're using you know their opiates for pain. Um, the camera is... I'll probably get his name wrong. It starts with a B. Um, back in the 80s, he was treating AIDS patients and using naltrexone to treat them so that they'd get off their opiates and other things. And he started noticing that the AIDS started to get better. Mm-hmm. And you kind of have to step back, especially back then, and just go like, oh my God, this is the, the scourge of modern life. And we're treating these people for a hard drug addiction and we're doing something to their immune system that's improving us. And oh my God. I think nowadays we just say WTF, you know, like what's going on? So it took him, took him a little while to research it to an effective relationship, but um, if you take about one, two, maybe two, three, four, maximum 4.5 milligrams of low-dose naltrexone, LDN, and if uh, some people take it at night, some people take it in the morning. Uh, when I use it, I take it in the morning because it messes up my sleep too much. But so you take it, and within about 45 minutes, the naltrexone comes along, and what it does is it actually blocks the opiate receptor on your white blood cells. Now imagine they, you know, I'm a white blood cell. Try not to do a little pirate song about being a white blood cell. <laughs> um, <clears throat> someone turned off my source of opiate information or endorphin-driven information with respect to the function of the rest of the body and the immune system. So here I am, kind of an important cop walking around the body going, I can't hear anything on my, my CD or my radio. So I start sending out messages saying, I'm not getting any, anything on the channel of endorphins. You know, I, I need that, I need that information. It's like my little, um, for some reason I'm having the image in my mind of someone playing a video game and you get the little health pack next to your guy and if you get shot and you can use up your health pack and you're gonna be okay. Well, imagine you're watching your health pack diminish in your little video game and you keep picking them up, but they're not working. <clears throat> right so this is again when the, the immune system starts sending messages to the back of the brain saying dude we're missing the entire endorphin channel here like step it up so the body's like oh well okay i guess i should step up the endorphin drive so now your body's producing more and more endogenous endorphins that regulate immune system behavior and after about four hours to six hour six hours go by, the little blocking uh, chemical in, in naltrexone breaks off the white blood cell and degrades, and then the white cell becomes open to the opiate uh, class of endorphins, that, or the endorphin class of messaging molecules in your immune system. For the next 16 hours, it's going to deeply self-regulate your immune physiology. Now, that, that's kind of on a curve. It starts pretty heavy and then gradually diminishes up down. But... Uh, now, essentially, every day, you're going to get a minimum of 10 to 12 hours of positive immune regulation uh, endogenously from your own biochemistry by just basically like holding the, you know, if you're going to try and hold someone's nose and mouth closed for a minute, you may turn red and they're freaking out and finally they can breathe. <gasps> then all of a sudden, you just see that kind of respiration changing the nature of autoimmune inflammatory dysfunction. So that's how LDN works. Uh, it does work for fibromyalgia, but 
Um, given the new discoveries that we've come to understand about fibromyalgia, I think you'd be needing to use a bunch of other stuff to make sure that you're dealing with vascular inflammation and contraction more specifically, so the LDN can work. And specifically for cancer, when the white blood cell is suffocated <clears throat> and then it returns to normal function because the endorphins can come in, if you do have cancer and you need a proliferation of killer cells to go and eat the cancer, that's how LDN is going to speed up your recovery from cancer, besides not only just reducing inflammatory processes, which actually drive cancer uh, in the first place. And by the way, tomorrow I'm doing a two-hour talk on cancer, so if you want to watch what webinar on how cancer works, it'll be up there. <laughs> a couple of questions coming in. Okay. Um, first first off, before we get into that question, is... That 350 milligrams weighted amount of mushroom stem and caps that was referenced to the interview you gave before. So you were I, I, would, I would take stem and caps of a bunch and then grind them up in a coffee grinder and then just weigh it out because that's the way it's been done since clay. Okay. <laughs> Although they didn't weigh it out when 10,000 years ago, they think they just knew it a little scoop. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, the other question, just to relate to what you were just talking about, is uh, from Mark. Any similar substance to cut the addictive need for food? Hmm. First thing that comes to mind would be in acetol. In acetol, PHP or P5P? No, that's something else. Doesn't matter. Um, <clears throat> So it's extracted from certain plants. It's um, a really unique, it's almost a carbohydrate and it's really unique in the way that it changes cravings. Uh, it's used at 15 teaspoons a day. It's a white powder, but imagine trying to choke back 15 teaspoons a day uh, of this stuff. And at that dose, it can regulate heroin addiction. Wow. At about 10 teaspoons a day, it can regulate hard alcohol addiction. At about one teaspoon every four hours, uh, usually mixed in with something called glutamine and or other supplements, you can uh, regulate pretty severe hypoglycemia. A lot of people, and uh, this is on the list of things my supplement company is going to have in little envelopes for people someday, kind of like the emergency packs, if you've ever seen them. Mm -hmm. It's going to be inacetol, L-glutamine, and uh, true cinnamon, uh, all of which are going to be called a sugar balm, B-A-L-M, not balm. And uh, that way, if you needed to, you could just take that little pack, or you could make this up at home, you did. <laughs> Put a scoop in a little jar, stir it up, shoot it back with some water, or hold it under your tongue for a couple of minutes and then swallow it. And if you're having serious cravings for anything, especially carbohydrates and stuff like that, within two to four minutes, you're gonna be basically going, nah, not so much. I-N-O-I, oh, sorry, I'm dyslexic. I-N-O-S-I-T-O-L. Inositol. Inositol. That's how I see it in my mind anyways. But potatoes, potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. That's pretty exciting. Uh, another question that we have here for you. Uh, and if you've just joined us, this is the Fusion Health Radio Q&A podcast. I'm Anthony Sanada. That's Dr. Michael Smith. He's the guy with the answers. I'm the guy with the questions. And my new glasses. Woo! 
such a trip. Like almost as smart as I do. I've had this for Yeah, long. I'm thinking I should get some tattoos on my face just to like down my my shine, you know. <laughs> I'm going to start running a tube today. Uh, okay. Uh, next, next question. question. Why, Why can't I get past three weeks without carbs? Oh. <laughs> so, um, obviously, that's um, somebody's in the process where they're actually trying to uh, live without carbs. Do you want to speak to that in the first place? Why somebody would want to do that? Well, it's not that you're trying to live without carbs, you're trying to live without grains. Okay. And um, so I'm just going to check the, the universe because I thought I was getting close because usually we have these two-hour podcasts and I think it's been 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, we're just up at an hour right now. Is, is that a myth, Michael, the car whole carbohydrate thing? with Because like my, my perception is you need carbs and it's a fad, this diet fad of anti-carb and rice can be sprouted. It's not the rice's fault that people abuse it. It's, I'm just going to run at that and then see if I missed anything and then jump in, okay? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the first thing that needs to be unpacked for this, and I've, for the first time, actually said unpacked. I've had a hard time with fad terminology, but I'm going to suck it up. There's two kinds of starch in the world for us to eat. One is called a cellular starch. Let me say that another way. One is called cellular starch and the other one is called acellular starch like not cellular starch because i said that funny. so in a true cellular starch food like a root or a tuber the cell matrix of the actual living form of the plant has to basically absorb nutrients and water and push something out of the way so the carbohydrate has actually got a physical job in reality as a part of the force matrix of, of, of the, the structure of that thing to deal with forces and gravity. So it's a really different thing. And what's counterintuitive is you'd think, man, that must be a really dense starch to be able to push dirt out of the way. Let's see. And then when you look at grains, now grains have like, a, they're basically what we call a plant embryo. So it's the baby of a plant and it's got the, the egg in the sense that it's a germinated thing. Uh, or will be a germinated thing, and it has the chance to actually grow into a complete plant. But in order for it to have the energy to grow from embryo to plant, you have this big acellular or non-cell-by-cell-driven uh, starch compartment, um, which is basically just a big bag of fuel. <clears throat> so when you look at the, the under the microscope of what's going on, if you looked at a root, say like a sweet potato or a burdock root or something like that, it's going to be maybe 15% carbohydrate uh, by weight. So if we took uh, 100 grams of burdock root and put it in a dehydrator forever, we'd be left with 15 grams of dry burdock because the rest of it's water. When you take an acellular starch like a grain, it's over 50. It's about, it's about 50% water, just a bit less than that. Right. So you know, the amount of carbohydrate is a lot higher per serving, right? Which is great in the sense of, oh my God, we can feed the masses if you're thinking about it that way. And that's how food works in, in the bigger picture for most cultures, right? Can we feed everybody? What's tricky is when you look at the actual starch uh, molecule under the microscope, uh, root starch is going to be about 20,000 uh, glucose units per molecule. When you look at, say, rice, it's 160 to 200,000 glucose molecules per
per molecule of starch. Starch is called amylopectin if you want to look it up. Three different kinds of kind of complicated, but so when you're looking at food and you're obviously going to eat it. How does something that's full of a certain ratio of fiber, a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of fat, and about twenty thousand you know glucose units you know per molecule, you know that that's what you're eating. That's what your insulin metabolism has to deal with. That's what your blood supply, your brain has to deal with. And then you go and eat a mouthful of something or a bowl full of mouthfuls of something like rice. And rice is the least toxic, okay? I mean, eat a baguette and see what happens. <clears throat> right? Sorry, baguette. Now you're eating a massive amount of food that's pure glucose bound up in amylopectin molecules and the hundreds of thousands of molecules per molecule without the protein and the fiber and the fat and the other things in any ratio that's actually a benefit to humans. So here's another way to look at this almost anthropologically. And I've been, in, I don't know, around a lot of Chinese people most of my life just because I'm in the martial arts and stuff. <clears throat> and I did work in a Chinese restaurant for all in the kitchen. So I could say I talked to some, you know, <laughs> I talked to the source. <laughs> these, guys, these guys used to make fun of non-Asian people for what we would buy off their menu. Anyway, so if you go to a Chinese restaurant right now and you ask for a bowl of rice, you're going to get a bowl that's probably bigger than a bowl of cereal that you would expect to get if you had a bowl of cereal for breakfast. If you go back 3,000 years, the rice bowl in Chinese cuisine was the size of a large shot glass in the sense that rice was considered to be a consensual commitment to feed everybody the food. If you ever eat a traditional Chinese feast, all the food is put on a lazy Susan, the big spinny thing. I'm sure they have a Chinese name for it. <laughs> and um, the, the, the social compact is I will dip the food in the ketchup, I mean the rice, the filler, the non-food, to tell everyone around the table that I promise to share the food by dipping it in this condiment grain that has very little nutritional potential in it except calories. And of course, take a moment if you're kind of having a hairy eyeball at this and remember, Asian people eat rice at least two meals a day, every day. So of course they pick rice, it's the least toxic one, but it's still basically just a bag of sugar. Right? So we do, certain people do need, um, we all need a certain amount of carbohydrate unless you're going pure ketogenic, and then you just need a certain amount of fiber. So you have to turn your metabolism into being able to do that if you can, right? But you can get all your carbohydrate in the sense of eventually burned down to glucose from plants and roots and actual cellular structures, which are much more nutrient dense and much more ancestrally approved in the sense that it's only been a you know 10, 20,000 years that we've had any real meaningful long-term in terms of the, the cycles of the year, <clears throat> long-term access to actually any kind of grain is a food staple. So again, we have to take a moment and step back and go, this is a conversation that is very compressed because we're talking about populations who live on acellular starches as their primary calories at at least one, if not two, if not three meals a day. That's terrifying because you're eating the least nutrient-dense food on the planet. Well, besides water, right? I guess water's not a food, so anyway. So that, that's the thing. Now, when it comes to people who ask questions like, you know, and usually it's week three, four, when they just cannot thrive, they get moody, they get shaky, they get sweaty, they get weirded out. It's, it has to do with what's called metabolic type and how you oxidize fuel. Some people can oxidize fat way over protein, way over carbohydrate. Other people have to oxidize carbohydrate over fat and then over protein. And there's 
like a 700 page book you'd have to study and it's a really nerdy book but um, that's why some people cannot thrive without carbohydrate is that they have a different uh, genetically formed metabolic engine for you know carbs fats and proteins and at a certain point without abundant carbohydrates they just flail now working with people the way that i do for the last 20 odd years we try to get people to max out on things like root smash and you know other things that are uh, cellular structures that are less harmful but there are some people that maybe it's just you know we eat too much of the stuff as our yes kids and our whole organ system and cellular metabolism formation has really locked into this in a way but there are some people i work with that have diseases where statistically your best chance is to not have grains for at least a few months just to get rid of the the irritants and long enough for your immune system to reset not suggesting that's an ideal thing for your whole life but it's for some people definitely something you have to do there are some people that cannot can't get past months number one Mm-hmm. So then we have to go on a modified autoimmune protocol where they're having something like risotto, which is white rice, not brown, because brown's still got more problems than white, which is why all of Asia is white rice, just that point on. Um, but you have to cook it in fat, because unless you're from Asia, your pancreas is not formed around digesting very much of this in a day. Right? I mean, it's an actual medical fact that your Asian pancreas is 40% more efficient at breaking down uh, cellular, acellular structures than a European pancreas because they've been doing this for 7,000 years, right? So I think sometimes we do have to step back from, you know, forms and charts and stats and, you know, all of that go, there's a lot more going on here than just sort of fad thinking in, on, on either side of the fence. It's, it's never going to be that simple, which sucks for people like me, but you know, here we are. What, what about the, the concept of sprouting the rice? Does that change the carbohydrate matrix of happening there? Yeah, and, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to join me with a placard at the co-op. Because I'd like to stand in the the bulk food aisle with a sign that says germination is not sprouting. What's the difference? Germination is it got wet and it started to change color and it started to move some things around and then it was dried out again. Yeah. Because I can go to the co-op. Sprouting takes a few days. Yeah, but when you sprout a plant, it becomes a plant. And by by the laws of terminology, at least in medicine, a sprout has to be three or four times longer in its plant sprout than the original seed was at its largest dimension. So if I'm sprouting a big ass bean, it's gonna to have to be four times bigger than that bean to be considered a plant. Right, before it's- But now it's like vegetable. We're not yeah. eating grains anymore, we're eating vegetables. But during the transformation, is is, is the carbohydrate less in it or, or the damaging oh, yeah. aspect? Yeah, yeah, the, the carbohydrate turns into the plant. And that, that's the point is why would you eat carbohydrates when you could eat like a, like a five day old, like, super high potency, high nutrient dense. I mean, this time of year, I usually start going on the sprout kick at about the 4th of March, just because of Taoist calendars and indigenous calendars and stuff. But that's when you just want to like go crazy with sprouting foods. But now you're eating plants. (laughs) plant is is using those carbohydrates as fuel to grow then, and it it transforms it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I think these are all topics that we've covered off on uh, previous podcasts as well. Yeah, uh, yeah well, I'm sure this, this is pretty pretty important stuff, though. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but I would say that if you're going to the uh, a store that's a health food store and it does say sprouted grains and it still looks like quinoa, it's been germinated. And the terminology is dangerously malinformed to people who don't understand what we're saying because they might be choking that stuff back. 
uh, accelerating autoimmune disease, you know, accelerating systemic infections of bacteria that live off the acellular carbohydrates we can't get to, creating all kinds of problems. And I mean, like, I'd love to make an example of that, but I think we're out of time. <laughs> well, kind of that's the point of talking about other podcasts that we've done there. Yeah. People can certainly dig into the catalog, the Fusion Health Radio catalog, and find out more information about what it is we've talked about in terms of gluten and all kinds of stuff like that before. Yeah, or you could just type in gut microbiome Pima Indians. Pima, P-E-M-A? P-I-M-A. P-I-M-A. Yeah, the, the, it's a really potent bit of information about why people get fat and why people don't get fat on the same food. And it's all got to do with the kind of carbohydrates and the kind of bugs you're feeding. So that sounds like a great rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> <laughs> I see somebody else just came on, so we just want to make sure we've covered everyone's questions before we shut her down. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're about to wrap up for the day. Um, and we're, we're going to try this again. Uh, every month we're going to do this, yep. Yeah. The, the whole idea behind doing a, a Q&A podcast for Michael and I is to um, uh, get in touch with you, the listener, and uh, share more ideas back and forth that way, ideas and questions. But as well, um, part of our process of actually monetizing the podcast is creating a Patreon channel. And um, a Patreon sort of crowdfunding campaign allows uh, you, the listener, to support us uh, financially um, with as little or as much as you like and different tiers um, so that we can improve our whole technical process so that when we come to uh, create this kind of content, um, it comes off flawless. <laughs> and I say that tongue-in-cheek because today was a bit of a hurdle to get over, but we managed. Uh, Patreon.com slash Fusion Health Radio is uh, the link for that. Uh, I invite you to take a look there. Uh, also, we would love for you to share uh, this with your friends and let them know that it is possible to talk to Michael one-on-one. So uh, Carolyn's still on, Victoria's was on, she just ducked out, and Marita is on. So just if anyone has any questions before we head off, it's all about you guys. That's why we're here. Uh, well, if that uh, wraps up the questions that, uh, that folks have for the day, I guess we'll wrap up the podcast here. Uh, Michael, thanks for uh, showing up today and answering some questions from our loyal listeners. You bet. Thanks for everyone for coming out. I'm glad we got to make this work. It was a bit funky, but here we are. A little bit funky, but here we are. That's what Fusion House Radio is all about. <laughs> and so um, are we going to make this available for people to come back and listen to? I believe it's going to be the next podcast that goes up, yeah. Sounds good. Uh, again, Fusion House Radio, share it with your friends. Uh, tell your friends and family, people you care about, who should learn something about health or are curious to know. Um, and uh, thanks for tuning in. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.